Psalm 105 rejoices in the works of God. The psalmist recalls God's work on behalf of his people, beginning with Abraham all the way through the conquest of Canaan. He remembers God's deeds, his wondrous works, his marvelous works, and his wonders. As the psalmist rejoices in the works of God, he is reminded why God works on behalf of his people. God works on his people's behalf because he remembers his promises. Of note, the first 15 verses are repeated in 1 Chronicles 16, 8-22 as part of the celebration following the return of the Ark of the Covenant. We're going to divide this psalm into several parts. We'll look at verses 1-7, through 7, the call, verses 8-15, to 15, the covenant, verses 16-23, the care, verses 24-36, the calamity, and finally, verses 37 to 45, the comfort. Let's begin with verses 1 through 7 and consider the call. Now, this call breaks into two parts, a call to worship and a call to works. Let's begin in verses 1 to 4. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Speak of all his wonders. Glory in his holy name. Let the heart of those who seek the Lord be glad. Seek the Lord and his strength. Now, verse 1 is a call to worship. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. God deserves gratitude from us because why? He has done deeds. He has done wondrous things, as we will see. Call upon his name. Now, speaking the name of God is to evoke his presence and his authority. When one knows his name, we assume that that one has a personal relationship with him. Then he says, make known his deeds among the people. These deeds are going to be expounded throughout the rest of the psalm. In verse 2, he exhorts us to sing to Yahweh. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Sing to his holy name. Now, the idea of speaking of his Wonders, or speaking of his deeds, the word speak there means to muse on, to think on, to meditate of. And then we are to glory or boast in his holy name. Because we have been redeemed, we are to boast or praise his holy name. Now notice that God's name is holy. That means it is separate, it is unique. The psalmist goes on to say, Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord be glad. Now, the verb seek here is a term for seeking God's presence in the temple. The exhortation continues in verse 4. Seek the Lord and his strength, that is his might. To know God is to know his power. And then we move to the call to work in verses 5 to 7. Seek his face continually. Remember his wonders which he has done, his marvels and the judgments uttered by his mouth. O seed of Abraham, his servant, O sons of Jacob, his chosen ones. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Now, as he focuses on these works, notice we are told in verse 5 to remember his works or his wonders. The word wonders there is mighty interventions. And not only are we remember his mighty interventions, but we are to remember what he has done, his marvels, or literally his miracles, and also his judgments. Now, the mighty interventions, obviously, is a reference to the 
uh, intervention of God on behalf of Israel in the Exodus. He redeemed them. He brought them out by a mighty hand, by mighty interventions. And we think of, of course, the plagues, uh, his marvels, his miracles. And of course, you know, nothing more miraculous than parting the Red Sea and the people walking over on dry land. And of course, his judgments. And we're reminded of how God judged the Egyptians, how he judged them with the plagues, but also how he judged them with the uh, when the Red Sea came crashing down upon them. Moses sings in response, Who is like you, O Lord, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. At this point, the psalmist shifts to his hearers, and he reminds them of their identity in verse 6. They are the seed of Abraham, God's servant. And because of that, they inherit the covenant that God made with him. They're also the children of Jacob, their Israel's seed, his chosen ones. And God says to Israel through Moses, The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special feature of above all the peoples on the face of the earth. Deuteronomy 7, 6. In much the same way, God has said to the church, through Jesus Christ, the Lord has chosen us to be a people for himself. And so, indeed, we are a special treasure. After telling God's people who they are, the psalmist reminds us of who God is, beginning in verse 7. He is the Lord our God. He is Yahweh. He is the covenant God. And his judgments, his works, are in all the earth. Now, we're also going to consider here the covenant in verses 8 to 15. The covenant. And the covenant gives us assurance in verses 8 to 11. And then we're going to see what the covenant accomplishes in verses 12 to 15. So let's look at the assurance in verses 8 to 11. He has remembered his covenant forever, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations, the covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac. Then he confirmed it to Jacob for a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, To you I will give the land of Canaan as the portion of your inheritance. Notice that in verse 8, God remembers his covenant forever. For him to remember his covenant means that he will enforce it and be faithful to it. And what is the covenant? The covenant is God's word which he commanded for a thousand generations. And what is its content? Well, originally that covenant was made with Abraham. He vowed to Abraham to be his God and to give him the land, to give him seed, and to give him a blessing which would bless the whole earth. Now this covenant treaty is modeled on the royal grant covenants whereby a king gives to his loyal subjects all that he will do to them. And this is a gracious and unconditional covenant in its provisions. It requires nothing on the part of the people. God is going to do this for his people, no strings attached. And because God's covenant is forever, in verse 8, it is, it is reconfirmed to Abraham's son Isaac as an oath, as a promise. And remember, when God gives an oath, he cannot lie. Then it extends to his son Isaac, as Jacob, for a statute, or to Israel, Jacob's new given name, as an everlasting covenant. Now, it was necessary for it to be confirmed to Jacob because the covenant now continues only through that particular lineage. From that point on, the covenant belonged to Israel, the nation coming from Jacob and bearing his new name. God's covenant promise is cited in verse 11, where the land of Canaan is designated as Israel's inheritance. And now consider the accomplishment in verses 12 to 15. 
when there, there were only a few men in number, very few, and strangers in it. And they wandered about from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people. He permitted no man to oppress them, and he reproved kings for their sakes. Do not touch my anointed ones, and do my prophets no harm. Now the promise of the land was given when they, when the patriarchs, were but few in number, when they were strangers, when they were immigrants. Thus they went from one nation to another. But at the same time, according to verse 14, God protected them. He reproved kings for their sakes and were reminded of how he punished Pharaoh for taking Abraham's wife Sarah into his household. Furthermore, God did not allow harm to come to his anointed ones. And those anointed ones were uh, the prophets or the priests, the kings that came forth from that line. In verses 1 through 15, we are called to praise God because he has intervened on behalf of his people. We are to remember his mighty acts in response to his covenant with Abraham and his descendants. God promised them a land and protected them as they wandered. And with that promise before them, they lived towards the future with great hope and anticipation. They were also, however, anchored in their past. God had made a covenant, and they trusted in him to keep it. In the same way, God has given us a covenant in his Son, in his death and resurrection, he intervened on our behalf. And he is with us as we go about as strangers in this present world. As we wander through this world, he is with us, guiding us in each step that we take. We're told by Paul that when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we do it in remembrance of him. We are anchored in the past, but we also look forward and proclaim that death until he comes. We look to the future with great anticipation. We look forward to that day when Christ comes. Let's pray. Our Father, Lord God, we come into your presence through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We come, Father, before your throne of grace because you are a benevolent, loving God, a God who remembers his covenant for a thousand generations, literally forever. And I thank you that we have been given that covenant that, Lord, through the son, your son's death, through his shed blood, through his resurrection, you have initiated us into that new covenant. And Father, you have given us your spirit. You have written your law upon our hearts. You have given us a new name. Father, I pray that we would go forth in the newness of life, that we would live up to our new name. We would live according to the law written upon our hearts. We would go forth with the spirit as our guide and allow him to direct our steps. Father, Lord, I thank you. And I pray that, Father, we would remember what you have done for us. For certainly, Lord, you remember and you will not forget, but you will deliver on all that you have promised. Father, again, forgive us when we quench or grieve your spirit. Forgive us when we break your law. Forgive us when we tarnish your name. And so, Father, I pray that we would give you praise, that we would worship you for your mighty works, that, Father, we would go forth with assurance because of what you have accomplished on our behalf. And so, Father, bless us. Bless us now. Bless us today, tomorrow, and for the remainder of our days upon this earth until we're called into your presence. Amen.